Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not, not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. Today we are revisiting a subject matter that was wildly popular. The feedback that we got on this episode, which was about religious neuroscience, spirituality, and religious experience, or I've been calling it in my description with people as spiritual euphoria. My first guest is Dr. Jeffrey Anderson, MD, PhD, who is a board-certified neuroradiology and diagnostic radiology doctor. He directs the FMRI Neurosurgical Mapping Service at the University of Utah and is a principal investigator for the Utah Functional Neuroimaging Laboratory. Dr. Anderson studies the brain. Welcome back, Dr. Anderson. Thanks for coming back to the show. Very happy to be back. Well, I am, I am just delighted by the work that you're doing and the impact um, that the public, how the public is receiving this work and its impact and impression upon them. And really what we're talking about is a study that you made with a small group of Mormons who re- recently had returned from a mission, and you should take it from there and describe what you guys did with them. Well, what we wanted to do was understand spiritual and religious experience. So we chose a group of Mormons, devout Mormons, for a couple of reasons, because they describe these frequent, common, meaningful, charismatic religious experiences that that happen on a frequent basis. And so we put these individuals into an MRI scanner, and we studied what happens in their brain while they have spiritual and religious experiences. And what's interesting is for those of you who are listening that are going, well, wait a minute, religion, um, I'm not so sure I want to hear more about this. Hear us out here because what we're really talking about is how the brain reacts to this state of 
spiritual connection or elevation and how it differs, tap, taps into similar parts of the brain um, that addiction does, but differs in one very, very important way, which yeah, maybe you could describe for us, Dr. Anderson, the actual neuroscience of what's going on. Well, what we found was that when individuals were having what they report as an experience of feeling the spirit in, in the Mormon colloquium, that we saw characteristic parts of the brain that were active. And among those, one of the most interesting was an area of the brain that traditionally processes reward. Um, this is an area called the nucleus accumbens, and it, it's also active in a lot of other contexts when people have rewarding experiences related to uh, feelings of parental or or pair bonding um, associated with winning at gambling drugs like methamphetamine or cocaine um, it's a it's a universal part of the brain that processes rewarding experience or euphoria so we're talking about a more primitive part of the, the brain the pleasure center of the brain that is activated in the in spiritual experience that is similar to other forms of pleasure, but there's a caveat that I find very exciting here. Well, there are other regions of the brain that are active too. Uh, it's not just the reward center, as might be seen with uh, a drug response, but you also see activation of areas associated with social reasoning, with empathy, with moral uh, cognition, um, attention, and, and so it's, it's a more complex response. And this being the prefrontal cortex. Yes. So this is what I find the most exciting about this work, that here you have um, spiritual experience or spiritual euphoria that allows us to experience that extreme high or pleasure um, but the part of the brain governing reason, accountability, and decision-making, et cetera, is remaining online. So there is a level of conscious awareness or consciousness that um, is present at the same time. Yeah, that's, that's, that's correct. And whereas in addiction, or when we're looking at people who are challenged with substance abuse, that prefrontal cortex or the reasoning part of the brain is, becomes offline. I suppose that depends on what type of, of stimulus you're talking about. I imagine somebody that is um, performing a, a gambling um, task that, that may be addicted to gambling may also have areas of the prefrontal cortex active. I just don't know. But I, I think that with, with just a drug, we typically see more the reward center itself activated um, or, or modulated. Um, without a lot of the other frontal lobe regions. And to me, why this is so exciting, because I, I, I do a lot of my work with addiction and trauma recovery, is to help clients and the public understand that this spiritual practice, whatever it looks like to the individual, is so good for us and good for us on multiple levels. And if we're challenged in one area, you know, let, uh, let's say you have a client who is in recovery, from substance abuse, and you can help them achieve a, a level of euphoria for what through whatever spiritual practice means to them, you end up giving them tools for self-mastery and tools for maintaining recovery. Maybe. So let me let me 
raise another possibility, though. That is, the brain doesn't really know necessarily what the content of these experiences are. This is just a rewarding experience. So uh -huh. I can imagine that you might have very similar brain physiology for someone contemplating perpetrating religiously motivated violence. You know, it, if it's the same regions of the brain that are involved, it may feel very much the same way. And it may be a very maladaptive experience. There are many people who have very traumatic religious experiences. And even though some of those feelings may feel really good, it may not be a healthy thing in their life. It kind of depends on the circumstances. I agree with you. And you brought this up when you were on the show last time about the, the, the mind of a religious fanatic or a terrorist that is executing bad acts in the name of his or her religion, the brain will light up or could light up in the same way. But I, I remember you also talking about people who may not necessarily be religious, but might find a spiritually peak moment, let's say hiking. Or yeah, I, I think that's very likely. I mean, we'd love to study that, but I, 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 it seems like a great hypothesis. Yeah, well, I think this is what is holding the lay public's interest. As I've been talking with people and receiving feedback on that episode, I think this is what has people curious. Well, if you can have that heightened state with your brain on God in a, in a traditional religious sense, if you experience that God-like force, and I'll give a great example, we just had this magnificent solar eclipse which I was in 100% totality for, and I would say mm -hmm. that that was a religious experience, and it wasn't religious. Sure, sure. I, I can imagine there's a lot of similarity with exercise, uh, the, the, the effects of, of these uh, complex but really powerful, rewarding experiences. I, the, the question is, is it, is it really kind of the same thing, regardless of the source of the experience? Are we talking about very similar experiences in the brain? I, I think so. I think so, too. And I think this is what makes it so exciting, certainly for people who are out to help people who are challenged, you know, with trying to find their happy place, trying to find a place of connection and meaning. Yeah, yeah, that would be that would be a, a great outcome. So can we get the University of Utah to, to, to do this study? <laughs> <laughs> we're we're certainly uh, pursuing it. We're we're just uh, looking at some some new data, looking at uh, authorities, how how individ religious individuals respond to uh, statements by in group versus out group authorities, and and that's been pretty fascinating to us as well because it looks like some of the content of the messages we 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 receive from our religious or spiritual authorities may be very much colored by whether they are in our group or not. In other words, we may not pay as much attention to the content of messages from leaders outside of our tribal groups. You make an interesting point about this, and, and I want to talk about this more. We're going to need to go to a break, and when we come back, let's carry on that thought, because the study that you did with the missionaries revealed something really interesting about that. Um, to learn more about Dr. Jeffrey Anderson's work, please visit www.religiousbrainproject.com. You can connect with him um, through Twitter at U of U Health 
And on Facebook, there is also a U of U Health. Did I leave anything out, Dr. Anderson? Contacts? Nope, that's great. Yeah, the religiousbrainproject.com is a very um, cool website, so please uh, check it out. We will be back in a minute. That is a promise, promise, and we will carry on the conversation about the crossroads of medicine, mind, and spirituality. Here come the tunes. Wait, wait, wait. Before we take that break, I want to talk about creativity and how making things can make you a happier and healthier person. Today's sponsor, Craftsy, is the digital destination devoted entirely to makers. More than 13 million enthusiasts from artists to quilters and beyond make Craftsy their home for binge-worthy on-demand content and access to the world's top experts and curated supplies, all served up in a fun-loving creative community. This year, resolve to live a more creative life. Sign up for your seven-day free trial at craftsy.com slash happiness. Once again, it's seven days of free craftsy at craftsy.com slash happiness. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back, and that's a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, it's free, it's legal. And we are talking about religious neuroscience, spirituality and religious experience. And what we mean by that today in specific is not necessarily a relationship with God or traditional religion, but spiritually peak moments and what it does to our brain and our well-being. And my guest is Dr. Jeffrey Anderson from the University of Utah. And Dr. Anderson, prior to the break, we were talking about um, groups and the response to leadership and its impact in our brains. Right. Well, we we really wanted to study this in particular. And so one of the experiments we did in our study was we showed individuals 
religiously themed quotations. These are you know, Christian quotations, and, and we, we showed them uh, the quotation and a little picture of the source, and uh, we used six different sources, three of which were Mormon leaders and three of which were non-Mormon leaders, like Billy Graham or Pope Francis. And in reality, all of the quotes were, were taken from C.S. Lewis and just randomly assigned to one of these six leaders. So we could look at the effects of whether somebody thought the quote was coming from one of their own leaders and see how that differentially affects the brain. Well, what we found was that, that our devout Mormon participants rated the quotations from their own leaders as more spiritual meaning, spiritually meaningful as well as reported feeling these spiritual feelings more intensely when they were contemplating messages from their own leaders. Even though the, the, the messages themselves were, were randomized for, for which leader they were ascribed to. So one's beliefs also impacted the, the brain's reactivity. In a very specific way. So we found that when they were looking at quotations they thought from, were from out-group leaders, that the areas of the brain that process facial perception uh, lit up. So in other words, they were scrutinizing the faces of these out-group authorities much more carefully than they were of the in-group authorities. Aha. Uh -huh. So, in other words, that if you believe that the person that is delivering the message or believe in the person who is delivering the message, you your response, your brain's response is going to light up more favorably, more pleasurably, and you will have that sense of euphoria, even though it may not necessarily be that leader's words. It's your belief that is, is, is what's responsible for this. And it, it appears that in the brain that we don't scrutinize the content as much of messages coming from in-group leaders as we do messages coming from out-group leaders. And I suspect this is true in a wide variety of contexts, politics, other deeply held convictions. When someone we perceive as from our own cultural group is the, is the messenger, we're, we're much less inclined to, to study the content critically. Huh. Well, and you think of it, its impact in other areas, too. I mean, I'm thinking of like in the media, you know, what what branding does for us. And if we if we believe in a brand, we're going to sign on for that brand, regardless of uh, necessarily it being the best. And it's unconscious and we all do it. Yeah. And, and so what, what are the implications for future research in this area? Because I see this is just like the tip of the iceberg and, and a very exciting one, I might add. Yes, I, I think what, what is really important to understand is, is this barrage of information we all receive, some of it religious, some of it political, some of it not. We, I think it's helpful to understand how much of that information uh, just goes under the radar that we just accept as true without questioning it. This is, is very impactful, and I, I, I think it's important to address how our perception skews our reality. I mean, I think that that's really what this is speaking to. Yes, you're doing it in the, in the research in the context of um, religious neuroscience, but we're really talking about the, the, the science of belief 
Yes, we, all of us uh, have tribes that we belong to. We have these cultural groups that we affiliate with. And there's this enormous effect on how we view the entire world. We all see our lives through these glasses of our tribal affiliations. And you see it in politics. You see it in, in religion. And so much of the conflict and strife we have between each other really has to do with, with, with uh, these groups that we belong to. And we're not aware of how much it impacts our perception of reality. Yeah. And the group can be as small as a family unit or as large as a political affiliation or a religious affiliation, um, that they are large and small. And, you know, where I also see your research being hugely important is proving that this sense of spiritual euphoria to be able to bring ourselves to that elevated state through natural means um, is just good for our health and well-being. I think so. I think there's some pretty good literature that, that these types of spiritual experiences tend to be associated with, with many positive health impacts. And after this dedicated period of religious practice in, in our experiment, we found that for both in-group and out-group authorities, that people rated the content as more spiritually meaningful, um, as, as more evocative, regardless of the source, after this period of practice. So there may be something about this spiritual experience itself that, that makes us more amenable to uh, listening to both in-group and out-group. And, and I go back to the recent experience that many of us had with this eclipse, that you had a group of people that showed up to watch this natural phenomenon communing, right? It was in fellowship. Most of us didn't didn't watch it alone. And at that at that moment or during those two moments, politics didn't matter. Religion didn't matter. All that mattered was everybody had shown up to, to see this wondrous event and the elevation that resulted from that and the sense of community and well-being and uh, amenability that carried on through the day. I can speak through myself that I felt as though I was on a high for the day. Absolutely. It seems like a tremendously healthy thing. And what's the future of this? How, how can we help people tune into this, to tap into this resource that is within each one of us in a comfortable way, because not everybody is comfortable with traditional religion, but everybody is comfortable with elevation. Many of the, for, for many people, I, I think that there are stigmas associated with different types of these experiences. Certainly for people who are, who are not religious, the very idea of religious or spiritual experience can be stigmatizing or, or, or off-putting. And, and if it is the case that, that there's a lot of similar things going on, whether we're talking about the effects of, of exercise or, or other types of healthy experiences, maybe some of that stigma goes away if we realize that we're really doing the same thing in our brains. Yeah. Maybe our perceptions of people who are more religious or less religious, maybe not quite so critical if we realize that even if the messages from our gods or our, or, or our spiritual sources 
are different, that the experience may be the same. Well, well that, that's, a, that's a source for common ground. That's a, a place for finding empathy with each other. That even if we come from vastly different tribes with a different outlook on religion and politics, if, if we if we really are functioning the same way in our in our brains as we as we try to find rewarding experiences, we'll, we'll, there's a platform there for understanding each other. Yeah. Well, I think the platform then becomes empathy and compassion and kindness and altruism and a whole host of these emotions that we know generate well-being, generate happiness. Right, exactly. You know, when I ask people, like, well, what do you want out of your life? Everybody says the same thing, you know, I want, I want to be happy, I want to have a peaceful life, I want to have a good life, you know. Everybody pretty much says the same thing. So regardless of being in the in-group or the out-group or part of the tribe or, or, or not part of the tribe, we're not that different when it comes right down to it in in my view anyways i don't know about you yes that's right and the differences that we do have are, are interesting uh, in our study there when people had these types of spiritual experiences there there were differences from individual to individual on which brain regions were activated and it it was related to religiosity to experience to practice and it may be that regions associated with empathy that were more active in some people than others have a lot to do with our sociality, with our moral values. All of that needs more research. But it may be that practice by listening to these feelings, whatever the source that motivates us and feels rewarding to us, that over time that practice can change who we are, can change how we see the world and the, the social experiences that we have. Well, to learn more, for those of you who are listening and curious, please visit www.religiousbrainproject.com. This incredible research is being done at the University of Utah by Dr. Jeffrey Anderson and his team there. You can connect with them on Twitter at U of U Health and on Facebook, U of U Health. And I can promise that we're going to do more of these episodes because I think that this is um, like we're onto something really good here. You know, this feels like uh, brain candy <laughs> to me. <laughs> and, and I really applaud you guys for the work that you're doing and like get some hikers in the, in the scan. Let's find out <laughs> what's going on in their brains. <laughs> Love to. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. And we'll carry on with our theme. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. 
The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're continuing the discussion about spiritual euphoria. And my next guest has written a, a wonderful book and is researching this as well. The book is Fulfilled, How the Science of Spirituality Can Help You Live a Happier, More Meaningful Life, authored by Dr. Anna Yusum, who completed her undergraduate education at Stanford University, where she studied biology and philosophy. She attended Yale Medical School and the NYU Residency Training Program in Psychiatry, Dr. Yusum has traveled, lived, and worked in over 50 countries and presented at numerous national and international medical conferences. Dr. Anna Yusum has also published more than 60 academic articles, book chapters, scientific abstracts, and reviews on various topics in psychiatry. And now she's focusing on spiritual fulfillment through her new book. Welcome, Anna. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, this is this is a great pleasure. Let's talk a little bit about your inspiration for writing the book. Absolutely. So like you said, I started with a very conventional, traditional medical approach and medical training. And I was going about my training, learning all the healing tools that you learn in medical school. And then my own life hit a little bump in the road. I was dating someone and that just did not work out. I realized that the man I was dating would never be emotionally available to me in the way that I had hoped. And it was a big heartbreak for me. Later, I learned that the reason I had drawn in uh, emotionally unavailable man was actually an indicator of an important spiritual principle. We don't draw into our lives who we want. We draw into our lives who we are. I had drawn in this emotionally unavailable man because a part of me was emotionally unavailable. And I had to work that through and really open my heart to love before I could meet my soulmate and get married. So that was one part of the heartbreak. And the other part was being in academic trouble for the first time in my life, which made me feel like a total failure. So the coalescence of these two things led to my dark night of the soul. And here I was as this healer with all these healing tools under my belt, and I couldn't really heal myself. I fell into this darkness. And that's what led me to look for alternative modes of healing and led me to do traveling and finding other ways and other philosophies for how people can pull themselves out of darkness. And that's when I studied with shaman in South Africa, in South America. I started learning Kabbalah in New York City and in Israel. And I studied Buddhist meditation in Thailand and also spent some time at ashrams in India, learning different approaches to how to think about the mind and about healing. And in the course of that, my own darkness started to lift. And eventually, the spiritual principles I learned and the healing tools I learned, I began to apply to my own practice. There's nothing like a trip to India to help a, 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 a crisis. In my Precisely. <laughs> in, exactly. my own, in my own experience, I mean, I, and, and I think everybody that goes to India 
says the same thing, that there was a spiritual awakening that happened there for them. On so many levels, in part because you have this new conception of what materialism means. You see the people there who have so much less materially than people in much of the Western world, yet they're able to remain content and fulfilled. And then you realize how the materialism illusion actually shapes so much of our world. And yet on the other hand, you also develop a sense of gratitude because of what you do have that a lot of people in India may not. And the coalescence of those two things together with the Hindu philosophy and principles that are espoused in an ashram really help people to grow and heal. And that was my own experience as well. Let's talk a little bit about science and spirituality often being at odds in the world of medicine. And we just touched upon it before we started the segment. Um, Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so part of the reason for writing my book was to try to bridge this gap, which is often this dichotomy seen in the Western world between science and spirituality. Science, by its nature, is something that is subject to experimentation, that could be seen and observed and reproduced, and you ask concrete questions and get concrete answers. Spirituality by its very nature, is very different. It's often the opposite. It's personal and subjective and difficult to observe with your eyes per se and not necessarily repeatable and much more imminent and transcendent. That's why they're often at odds. And it's only now that a lot of scientists are recognizing the power of spirituality in helping people to heal from physical, mental, psychological illness and are starting to, number one, design studies to test this and actually quantify this, which are difficult to do, but they're certainly doing them. And number two, to give people tools to integrate spiritual practices and philosophies into their healing modalities. You mentioned prior to us, you know, starting the chat on the air about, I, I, I told you that I do a lot of work in addiction, and this is the one area of a client's recovery plan that is most complicated or most challenging to them oftentimes, you know, the spiritual component. And you said something very interesting to me, where is addiction is the one area that medicine recognizes spiritual practice as being part of the plan. Exactly. Two areas, addiction and hospice care. Those are the two areas of medicine where a spiritually based model is one of the standards of medical care. For addiction, it's the AA model, which includes as the first three of the 12 steps of AA is I have a problem. This problem is bigger than me. I can't really solve this alone. I turn it over to you. And that you could be God or whatever one believes a higher power to be. It could actually be a secular higher power, which is why they have agnostic AA and, you know, things of that nature. And hospice care is the other place where spirituality is really integrated into the medical model of care as people make the transition from this life to the next. And when you look at happiness around the world, which is really my area of interest, you see that cultures that rate themselves to be the happiest tend to have a higher spiritual practice in their daily lives than their less happy counterparts. Precisely, precisely. And that shows that spirituality 
doesn't come from those things that are external to us. And certainly, you know, there's been many studies that show that up to a certain point, having more things and more money can make you happier. But that's to the point where your survival needs are met. Beyond that, it's really about who you are as a person and the kind of connection you have to the people around you and to something greater than yourself. And that connection to something greater than yourself entails, whether it be, you know, uh, higher power or mother nature or a shared global purpose. It entails living a life that's meaningful, living according to your calling, being able to help people and share in some way, shape or form on a regular basis. That's what truly enables people to be happy in a sustained, you know, longer term way. And that's very strong medicine and, and helping people to see that when we talk about spirituality, that we're not always talking about the G word, because for many people, the G word, and I'm talking about God, um, is very challenging, you know, especially somebody who feels betrayed by God. Exactly, exactly. Which is why in my book, as I define spirituality, I define it as a connection to something greater than yourself, whatever that means to you, which for some people certainly could be the G word, but for other people is nothing of that sort. It could be a connection to mother nature, a connection to shared global values, like trust and perseverance and values compatible with living a better life. It could be a a connection to higher consciousness or collective consciousness. All of those are ways in which people can connect to something greater and have spirituality in their lives. And I just want to mention by the book that Dr. Yusum is talking about, it's her book, Fulfilled, How the Science of Spirituality Can Help You Live a Happier, More Meaningful Life. I just wanted to give that plug, you know, just in case. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so yes, you know, that the, the definition of spirituality, I think, is really important. And I think you break it down into um, a, a very elemental way that is, it's digestible. It's like, okay, so, you know, we're not necessarily talking about religion. We're not necessarily talking about grandpa in the sky with tablets and robes. We're talking about, you know, a little bit different definition of something that connects us to one another and the universe. Exactly, exactly. And it's something that we can tap into every single day in whatever way feels right to us. And that's why fulfillment entails, excuse me, being able to connect to that part of yourself. See, people often, you know, think of something greater as being outside of them, but it's actually also a connection to your own soul. It's a connection to the deepest part of yourself in your core essence. That's as much connecting to part of something greater as is connecting to whatever is outside of you, like God or mother nature or collective consciousness. There's this belief that within our soul, there's a spark of the divine and it's actually looking inside that we can connect as deeply as by looking outside. Mm, I, I, I agree with that. Um, we're going to go to a break in a minute. Um, but before we do, I want to give our listeners your contact information. And once again, the book is fulfilled how the science of spirituality can help you live a happier, more meaningful life. The website for Dr. Anna Usim is www.annausim.com, and that's Y-U-S-I-M. On Twitter, she can be found at Dr. Anna Usim, and on Facebook, Anna Usim, M-D. 
We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. That is a promise. And I can't wait to share more with you, Anna. This is this is great, fun, and so useful. <laughs> Here come the two. Thank you so much. Here we'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappyatharvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I am talking with Dr. Anna Yusim, the author of Fulfilled, How the Science of Spirituality Can Help You Live a Happier, More Meaningful Life. And prior to the break, we were talking a little bit about um, defining spirituality and why it is often complicated for people to embrace spiritual practice. And and I want to talk now a little bit about your book and the three sections um, contained within it. Talk a little bit about authenticity to start. Sure. So authenticity is a connection to the deepest part of yourself, your core essence. It's who you are separate from what everybody expects you to be, separate from what society may expect of you, what your parents or what your spouse or your children may expect of you. And it's a sense of two things. One of them is your sole purpose, which is a combination of your soul, you know, calling, etc., and what you're meant to share in this world, but also your soul correction, which is precisely those things which are the greatest challenges to you. So it's recognizing those two things and living in accordance that enables you to connect deeply to your soul and live a more authentic life. And when you speak of soul correction, you mean improving relationships? Like what else? Exactly. So Everybody has different soul corrections. Everybody has something, but it's completely different from one person to the next. And in my book, I talk about four of the main soul corrections, including improving relationships, like you said, transforming fear, harnessing personal power, and releasing addictions. Mm, Releasing addictions. And, you know, not everybody has to be a heroin addict to be addicted. I think we need to really be clear about that. We're all kind of addicted, right? 
Precisely, precisely. <laughs> so there are drug and, you know, alcohol addictions. That's the most common things that people think of as addictions. And then there's even behavioral addictions like gambling and sex addiction and even addictions to iPhones. But even deeper than that are the addictions that permeate society in a much more subtle way. And that's the um, psychological addictions that we all have a little bit of, and that's addiction to accomplishment, to work, to achievement, to fame, to materialism, to status, things of that nature that could fill us temporarily and are actually adaptive in moderation. But if that's all that you rely upon, and if you have nothing more to sustain you, the more of that that you ultimately get, the emptier you begin to feel. And that's when something that could be potentially adaptive becomes an addiction. Mm, I, I, I agree. And, and what's interesting is the things that we are addicted to, and you know, we run the gamut from you know, music to, um, to heroin, you know, it really is about getting a sense of immediate pleasure, right? So it's a compulsivity that leads us to immediate pleasure or temporary relief or suspension of unhappiness. Precisely. And oftentimes that's what people turn to these addictions for. They turn to them for escape, an escape from our anxiety, an escape from depression, an escape from feelings of emptiness. Ultimately, that's precisely what addictions do. They help us to fill a void. And what's interesting about spiritual practice, you know, this is now flipping the coin to the other side, is that when we connect in that place, that higher place, however each one of us does it. And like you mentioned earlier, it can come from a religious practice. It can come from a spiritual practice. It can come from gardening or surfing, right? It needn't be uh, just, you know, one modality. There are lots of ways to get there. Precisely. Whatever makes you feel in flow. Exactly. Ah, flow. Yes. Flo and flow state, everybody knows it. So we should describe it. Exactly. It's that thing which when you're doing it, you lose all track of time and you feel that you're really driven by something greater than yourself. It's, you know, for some people it's surfing, connecting to nature. For some people it's writing, being creative in some way. For some people it's connecting to deep, you know, friendships and people who are so meaningful and important to them. All those things can make you lose yourself for a temporary moment, which is what enables people to really be in that state of flow. It's as though something's coming through you. Yeah. Uh, flow is a very, very imp important um, place to be able to experience. And we all know when we get there, um, it, it, um, uh, this is the work of Dr. Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, which is now decades old. He originated flow theory, and he talked about it in, in the study of athletes, dancers, musicians, and others who, when they get into that state of full immersion, there is a suspension of awareness of time and space and pure embrace, embracement of rapture or bliss or contentment. Exactly. And it's the most beautiful thing. It's really what is about feeling most alive is being in that state and finding every day and tapping in to whatever puts you into that state in a natural, healthy way. And when you talk about spirituality in the sense of being part of something that is greater to oneself, talk specifically about the, the components because you break it down into four different sections. 
Right. So in my book, I talk about spirituality and the part of something greater chapter as encompassing four things. One is synchronicity, which is being aware of those meaningful coincidences in our lives, which are often an indicator of part of something greater. It's kind of the universe guiding us along in our path. The second is consciousness, because ultimately quantum physics is showing that really the whole world is about consciousness. We often thought of consciousness as something secondary, a byproduct of our brain, which is primary. But actually quantum physics is showing the opposite, that consciousness is is primary and everything in the universe thereafter, including our own minds and the world, is secondary. The third part is immortality, and that goes with, um, I begin that chapter with a quote by Pierre Teilhard de Hardin, which is that we're not just physical beings having occasional spiritual experiences, we're spiritual beings having this temporary physical experience, which, you know, puts the idea of life and the soul into a whole different perspective. And then the final chapter is about interconnectedness and how actually we're all one. And this idea of separation is often precisely that. It's an illusion. Yeah, this this is huge, I think, this, this um, interconnectedness, because in working with clients and talking about their recovery and trauma in many cases... Um, we often touch upon the subject of, you know, empathy and compassion. And if I see myself as separate from you, then I am really disconnected from your experience and our experience that we share together. So the idea that we lean into being not only interconnected, but that we allow ourselves to be vulnerable enough to rely on that connection, that relationship as a soul food. Exactly, exactly. And to recognize, right, that, you know, sometimes it's all about me and we see things in that way. But actually, when you help another person, when you empathize really deeply with another person, the person you're most helping really is yourself because we are all one. And when we harm others and see others as separate from us, that they're different, that they're the terrorists or the enemy, we're really harming most of all ourselves because we really are one. You know, it's funny. It reminds me of a conversation I had many years ago, probably about 10 years ago with Dr. Chris Peterson, one of the grandfathers of positive psychology. When he was alive at the University of Michigan in his office, he was talking about the helper's high, about the euphoria that we do feel when we're, when we're doing positively good for another. Can you talk a little bit about the chemistry of that? Absolutely. Yes. So, you know, it's been shown that altruism and helping others releases really, really positive chemicals in the brain. There's, you know, it's uh, oftentimes it's akin to the feeling of love and doing good for others. There's something amazing about being able to share and feel feelings of meaning and purpose, which actually goes back to the flow state that we described. When people are in love, they have oxytocin, which is the the love hormone. You know, they have norepinephrine, they have serotonin go up. And altruism actually has very similar things associated with that because it really is also the positive feelings of doing good for others. People feel most altruistic when they're in love. So it's there's a really beautiful parallel there. 
Oh, indeed there is. We are almost out of time, and I would love for you quickly to answer the following question that, that will bring a chuckle. A patient comes to you, and you write a prescription as a psychiatrist for whatever you're dispensing, and included on your pad is the prescription for spiritual practice. What is the reaction? <laughs> well, usually the patients with whom I would give that prescription are actually quite open to that. They love it. They think it's great. They've actually needed it. They're like, I'm so happy that a doctor actually is acknowledging this part of me because often doctors don't. That being said, I do have plenty of patients come who really aren't interested in that. They want their Prozac. They want their Xanax. That's okay too. <laughs> there's not, you know, one, there's not a one size fits all approach and spirituality isn't for everybody. But in my practice, I found that those patients who do embrace a spiritual perspective are able to transform quicker, more thoroughly, and, you know, make changes of evolution in their own lives in a more constructive, thorough way. So it's a really beautiful thing. Indeed it is. Thank you for being my guest today, Dr. Anna Usim. To learn more, please visit www.annausim.com. The book we're talking about is Fulfilled, How the Science of Spirituality Can Help You Live a Happier, More Meaningful Life. You can connect with Dr. Usim on Twitter at Dr. Anna Usim and on Facebook, Anna Usim MD. And here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my amazing guest today, Dr. Jeffrey Anderson and Dr. Anna Usum, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember... Happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.